This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for October 6, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, for the past few weeks, we've been talking about the utility of a third dose of the mRNA vaccines, and it looks as if we'll soon hear something about a second dose for ad 26 covid 2 s the adenovirus-based vaccine from Johnson & Johnson. Underlying the decision about whether or not to administer additional vaccine doses are two questions. Is another dose necessary and is it safe? Today, we published four studies that address a couple of aspects of these two questions. Let's start with safety. We know that many people have side effects within the first few days of vaccine administration. Most of these are mild and almost all resolve quickly. More serious side effects have been less common. We've published a number of studies on an unusual syndrome, vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia, that's been seen in connection with the adenoviral-vectored vaccines, particularly CHADOX-1, the AstraZeneca vaccine. It's very rare, but it's quite serious. The mRNA vaccines haven't had such a strong association with serious problems, but one concern that's been raised has been around the issue of myocarditis, which in post-marketing studies has been found to be more common after vaccination. What did we know before today? Like many other adverse events that show up in post-marketing surveys, myocarditis was first noted as several case reports. Most of the cases have been mild and resolved spontaneously. Surveillance data collected since then has suggested that there is an increased risk of myocardial damage. It's been pretty difficult to measure the risk for a variety of reasons. First, some cardiologists who study this syndrome have suggested that the diagnosis of myocarditis requires biopsy, and few of the studies have included many biopsied patients. Second, large randomized controlled trials have not shown a risk of myocarditis, but that might be because it appears that the risk might be increased in young people, particularly young males, who don't make up a large part of the cohort studied in these randomized controlled trials. One large study from Israel, where everyone has received BNT162b2, the Pfizer vaccine, did come up with an estimate of risk. Importantly, they found that the risk of vaccination was far lower than the risk of myocarditis in those infected with SARS-CoV-2. Of course, far more people are vaccinated than become ill with disease. So it's not so simple to weigh the relative risks. So today we published two more studies from Israel that looked at this risk of myocarditis. What did we learn? Israel's been a sort of laboratory for vaccine safety and efficacy. The Israelis rapidly vaccinated a large proportion of their population, and they have an excellent healthcare system. One of the reports today is from the Israeli Ministry of Health, which used medical records which had diagnostic codes for myocarditis. They reviewed medical records and adjudicated diagnoses with expert input according to one set of criteria, the Brighton Collaboration Myocarditis Case Definition. The second group came from Khalid, a large HMO that covers more than half of the Israeli population, and it has an integrated electronic medical record system, which has been used before to study the safety and efficacy of vaccines. The Ministry of Health data, which covers the entire country, should include the Khalid population. But since the detailed Khalid database contains much more information and using a somewhat different case definition and more granularity for their patients, we end up with sort of complementary information despite the overlap. The Ministry of Health looked at 5.1 million vaccine recipients and found 283 cases of myocarditis, about half of which occurred following vaccination and only half of which were rated as probable or definitive. Based on historical data, 
they calculated an incidence ratio of about fivefold. The highest risk was in young males after their second vaccine doses, who had an incidence ratio of about 13. The authors conclude that there is an increased risk of myocarditis in vaccine recipients, but that the risk remains low overall. And what about the Clalit study? The Clalit group analyzed more than 2.5 million vaccine recipients and found that 54 met their case definition. Overall, the incidence of myocarditis was about 2 in 100,000, with the risk rising to more than 10 per 100,000 in young men. Almost all cases were mild or intermediate, and most had no persistent deficits in ventricular dysfunction, either at the time of hospital discharge or on subsequent echocardiography. However, one person developed cardiogenic shock and another required hospital readmission. I think that how one looks at these numbers depends on your point of view. Certainly, myocarditis is quite rare and generally mild when it occurs. Paradoxically, though, it occurs most commonly in a group that's at lowest risk for developing severe COVID-19. At this point, I think it's clear that the risk-benefit ratio is quite favorable, but I do think we're going to need to see more data to really establish the risk, especially as we look at additional vaccine doses. Eric, I think these data sets are complex to understand but important for us to probe further, both in terms of what they tell us and future investigation. As you note, defining safety is incredibly tricky as there may be unexpected side effects. For example, we saw this with the rotavirus vaccine 25 years ago and 20 years ago when intussusception emerged as a side effect. It only took about 5,000 babies to demonstrate efficacy because the seriousness of rotavirus infection was so easily measured given its high prevalence and morbidity. The rare side effects, however, took 60,000 or more uh, babies to look at to define how rare it is, when it is, and how to mitigate it. So I think that as we look at new vaccines and new treatments of any kind, We have to be prepared to look for unexpected safety events, which may not be what we are expecting, what studies are powered for, or what data systems typically collect, and that these may be differential in different groups. As you suggest, perhaps in younger men, myocarditis is more prevalent than in other age or demographic groups. We're not certain that's true. The initial data suggests it appropriate follow-up is needed. But it also is very tricky to decipher noise from signal, especially in retrospective data that were not collected for this purpose. And as you note, how to define myocarditis, what data are collected in real time to clearly establish the diagnosis is not traditionally done in typical clinical care the way in research, there's a very regimented approach, so things are uniform. So deciphering the noise from signal is really important. As we try to discern what's a background rate, what's related to the disease of interest, such as wild-type infection, and what may be related to the treatment. What I will say is I think the safety surveillance systems are working. Those set up by the US FDA, the US CDC, the Israeli data that we're discussing now, where we're able to see things like unusual thrombotic events, perhaps myocarditis in younger individuals. And these systems are detecting it, 
allowing further investigation and to better define the clinical significance. And I think you do point out how clinically relevant are these findings in terms of illness as opposed to a biochemical or echocardiographic transient observation. These are all questions that need to be better understood. And what we are struggling with as a community is how to manage data in our global discussion when these data are in process, they're not finalized, and we need to make our best decisions, albeit with imperfect information. Those are good points, Lindsay. And I wonder if we should devote a whole podcast at some point to understanding how you use post-marketing data to determine safety, because it's very complicated. We have these kinds of data in Israel where there's surveillance of the entire population or a very large percentage of the population, in the case of Khalid, looking for diagnostic codes or other findings which are somewhat specific for a syndrome. That works well if you know what you're looking for, but as shown here, even those diagnostic codes are not that reliable. And in fact, adjudication ended up throwing out many, and in some cases, the majority of what was called myocarditis after review of records. So they're good. They may be the best we have, but they're only kind of good. They certainly have limited applicability. We also have active reporting, as in the VAERS system that's used in the U.S., but those data also have problems with reliability, and most importantly, with denominators. We have no idea how often something is happening. We have no idea how often something that does happen is being reported. I think that the data produced by VAERS can be kind of frightening to look at because it's a list of bad things that happened. But when analyzed carefully, many times what looks like a problem turns out to be noise. So it's not so simple to figure out whether or not rare things are happening. With thrombotic thrombocytopenia, which is not associated with this vaccine, but has been associated with others, it's such an unusual syndrome that it was easier to pick out in the noise. But more common things are far more difficult. Eric, another way to look at that is a thought exercise. Let's imagine that we give an intervention to 100 million Americans in the next three months. What is the background rate of cancer, heart attack, stroke, high blood pressure, diabetes in 100 million Americans over three months? And what any deployment of a new intervention needs to do, such as a vaccine and VAERS, is how to understand the numerator of cases identified to the denominator of those at risk and what the background rate may have been. And as you point out, CVST or TTS is so unusual that even a handful of cases create signal. Other more common illnesses become very tricky to truly understand the concern for an augmented event rate with, let's say, a vaccine versus the background rate. And that's where these types of data are incredibly helpful to start to try and control for background rates, time periods at risk, a more uniform case definition to allow the scientific community to more carefully investigate if it's real. And if it is real, what is the clinical burden? Changing topics. One of the questions we've been looking at since vaccines became available is 
how long will vaccine-induced immunity last? Until this past summer, all indications were that protection was quite good. But during the summer, vaccinated individuals started to become infected. It's unclear how much of this is due to waning immunity in general and how much specifically to the appearance of the Delta variant, which appears to infect vaccinated people more easily than the variants that circulated before the summer. Today, we published two studies that tried to assess this question. The first consists of serologic assays. What did this study tell us? This study was performed at the Sheba Medical Center in Israel, a place where about 12,000 healthcare workers were vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine early after the vaccine became available. The investigators followed humoral immune responses with time after vaccination. They assayed both antibody binding and antibody-mediated virus neutralization. Over time, antibody levels declined, with neutralizing titers falling more rapidly than total binding antibody. The decline was more marked in older individuals, in men, and in those who were immunosuppressed. We've discussed these sorts of results in the past. Antibody levels always decline after vaccination with any antigen. The problem is how to interpret these numbers. Unlike for some other diseases, we don't know if there's a magic level of antibody that results in protection. We also don't know what sorts of responses are protective. For example, memory B cells might be as important as circulating antibody as the presence of B cells allows for the rapid production of potentially protective antibodies upon infection. And of course, humoral immunity is only one arm of the immune system. Many of the current vaccines also induce cell-mediated immunity, which could play an important role in protection. These numbers are useful, but they can't substitute for hard clinical endpoints. So Eric, as I'm sure you are dealing with, one of the most common questions I get in clinic from my patients and from my colleagues is what antibody level should I use to boost? It is very tempting to think that an antibody level magically equals protection. And I would like to believe that. And it probably is some truth there. But as you note, I don't think we know what level is protective. And as you point out, we don't even know what a protective immune response is. One of the observations that I think that we need to remember is that with infection and with vaccination, one has a peak of immune response weeks post-antigen exposure, and then a decay over months to years, and that's normal. Does that decay mean you're no longer protected, or is there an antibody maturation that occurs that may lead to a higher quality immune response? So the temptation to measure an antibody response at six months or 12 months, and to declare protection or susceptibility is very tempting, but at this point in time is poorly informed by data. So we need to remember the maturation of the immune response and then the anamnestic response that can lead to a rapid boost when exposed to the antigen again, presumably with a higher quality immune response. But these are all data in generation. And so in time, we may better understand what these data mean. And ultimately, what we need are clinical data to guide our understanding of protection. You're right, Lindsay. And of course, all of these numbers can be associated with protection. It certainly does seem that higher levels of antibody result in higher levels of protection against symptomatic disease. But we have to remember that these are associations, not mechanistic hypotheses. A higher level of antibody probably correlates with a higher 
anamnestic response. It probably also correlates with a better cell-mediated immune response. So we don't know that antibody is responsible. And that makes it that much more difficult to draw a direct line between antibody level and protection. Eric, I think that's true from these types of data, but it is tempting to look at the monoclonal antibody data where there's passive antibody infusion and we see evidence of protection. So it is not what vaccines do. It's a different therapeutic process, but it does encourage me that the antibodies themselves afford some level of protection at the right time of illness. So indirect evidence that I think supports the general thinking that antibodies do play a meaningful role, although these data do not dissect out the mechanism or these findings in particular. I agree. I'm not suggesting that antibodies can't play a role, not by any means. And the monoclonal antibody data, as you point out, do strongly suggest that we can get protection from antibodies. But just because monoclonal antibodies work using antibodies doesn't mean vaccines are working in the same way. And the mixture of responses, which are going to vary depending on which vaccine an individual has received, what the dose was and what the schedule was, might all contribute something to protection. So the other study we published had those clinical endpoints that you're talking about. It was undertaken in the country of Qatar. How did that study work? Like Israel, Qatar has instituted an early vaccination campaign that started in December. For the first few months, everyone received the Pfizer vaccine, though later on, mRNA-1273, the Moderna vaccine, was added. Vaccine coverage is very high. At the beginning of September, about 95% of residents older than 12 had received at least one dose of vaccine, with 88% getting both doses this is probably the highest rate of any country in the world. Despite this, however, the country had a surge of disease early in the summer, which has gradually declined. Prior to that time, most disease was due to either alpha or beta variants, but Delta became the dominant variant at the time of the surge. The investigators took advantage of databases that contain records of all vaccinations, all COVID-19 tests and related hospitalizations. They performed a test negative case control study, which we have discussed several times now, to determine vaccine effectiveness over time. The study population included almost 950,000 people who received a single vaccine dose, more than 900,000 of whom had also received a second dose. There were a total of about 18,000 breakthrough infections, about 10,000 occurring after two doses. But remember that the vast majority of people received two doses during the course of the study. There were almost 500 people hospitalized, about 50 required ICU care, and about 50 COVID-related deaths. And what conclusions did the investigators come to? There was a slow decline in the ability of vaccine to protect against infection, with effectiveness falling all the way to about 20% five months after vaccination. The rate of decline was similar at different ages. However, the vaccine continued to provide extremely high levels of protection against hospitalization and death with an effectiveness of about 96%, irrespective of the time of vaccination. This is the largest published study, and the results are very important for helping to set public policy. Along with other studies, these data do suggest that protection against symptomatic disease declines over time. However, vaccine continues to protect quite well against serious disease. This seems to be consistent with anecdotal observations here in the US. The increase in severe disease has been almost entirely in two groups, the unvaccinated and immune compromised. 
So, Eric, I think these data, like the Israeli data, are testament and tribute to global data sharing. Different countries have different healthcare systems, different rollout of interventions like vaccines, and they allow us insight into safety and efficacy. And I think we need to encourage more global interaction so we can learn from each other. As we've discussed before, I think we also need to think carefully about what we want vaccines to do. Is it to prevent illness, severe illness, or transmission, all of which are very valuable. For the individual, protecting against severe illness is really the priority. That's a different problem than diminishing transmission and community spread and protecting others, such as the immunocompromised and those who are unable to be vaccinated for one reason or another. And so I think we do have to think carefully about what we want vaccines to achieve to do the studies to define that, and then to have the public policy to deploy the vaccines to achieve those goals. I think this study also points out our prior discussion about immune correlates, such as waning antibody titer, versus clinical outcomes, such as protection against severe illness. And so in this population, there was loss of protection against mild to moderate illness, but preservation of protection against more severe illness very consistent with our understanding how vaccines and the immune response elicited from them work. I want to double down on one of your points and make a second one, Lindsay. Your first point was about international cooperation. And I think we can't say too frequently how indebted we are to the Israelis and the Qataris who have not only set up a system of delivering healthcare, which allows the collection of these enormous data sets, but really freely shared them. And without these data, we wouldn't know how to set policy here because we don't have similar data collection systems here with our very different healthcare system. What we don't have from the study is any idea of how well vaccination prevents transmission of disease. Those kinds of data are very difficult to collect. We've seen a few studies that have had evidence of household transmission, for example, but they're difficult to do. They can't come from large medical records. They generally require very individual level data in order to figure out patterns of transmission. But it's a very important question. What's the point of vaccinating? Is it to bring the epidemic to an end? And if so, then vaccines should prevent transmission or certainly limit transmission. Or is it to reduce the severity of disease during the epidemic? And we have evidence here that the latter is true. But our strategy for deploying vaccines would be different if the former is also true. So, Eric, as you suggest, we have indirect evidence of vaccines decreasing transmission, macroscopic evidence where communities that largely deploy vaccines see a drop in illness and cases substantially. We see it on the individual level, as you suggest, with households where the unvaccinated household members have less hospitalization or documented COVID, or individuals have less asymptomatic acquisition through serologic testing. These are indirect measures that there is a decrease in transmission in the context of vaccine deployment, but very complicated data given all the other forces at work, such as 
society being opened or closed, masks being used or not used, people's individual behaviors being altered because of perceived immediate risk. So we do need better data so we can have more informed and targeted strategy. But it's highly likely that vaccines do contribute to decreased transmission. But we really need to define this so we can optimize their deployment, particularly for communities at highest risk for complications like our immunocompromised and our senior centers, as examples. The value of global data sharing, as you highlighted, I think you know, what we've learned from the UK, from India, from South Africa, from all the different countries that have performed systematic analyses with different healthcare systems, different infrastructure, and different interventions being deployed have provided incredibly valuable information for us to understand the severity of COVID illness, how it's transmitted, and how to control it. And I hope going forward, the barriers to these types of data sharing the ability to better understand the strengths and weaknesses of data from different communities can further be highlighted so we can all benefit from each other's science and hopefully slow down transmission. Because as we all know, COVID is not going away. We are seeing flares in too many communities, which inevitably means it will spread to the other communities. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.